back for yet another episode of Behind the Lens. Welcome. I'm Debbie Elias, film critter, critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Is Pam sitting in there laughing at me? Uh, you can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad in print and online around the globe 24-7. But every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, you're going to find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, where we go behind the lens and below the line on film, television, sometimes music, stage, and even once in a while with books. So you never know what's going to happen here. Last week, I think we're still recovering from having Steve Lee here last week again. It's always exciting when Steve is in the house. Steve is a sound guru extraordinaire. He has done sound effects work, uh, mixing, editing on countless film productions over the years. And he is also founder of the Hollywood Sound Museum. Uh, so he was back last week making some really incredible announcements about the museum and brought along, uh, brought along a couple little golden boys to show off, which have been donated slash uh, loaned to the museum by some of Hollywood's finest, finest in the sound industry. So always fun to have Steve here. And it was a cacophony of sound effects last week. Um especially with Halloween in the mix. But today, we were going to have one and possibly a second live call-in guest today. One is off shooting. The other one, the publicist fell down on the job and didn't get him slotted. Uh, and he woke up this morning. It's like, I'm flying or else I just call in anyway. So hopefully we can, he's a surprise. So hopefully uh, we can make that happen in the future with this surprise person. And anybody that follows me on social media, you can probably figure out who this might be. But I'll leave it at that. But today, I've been interviewing up a storm. We are in the heart of awards season now where everybody wants to get their writers, their cinematographers, their makeup artists, their costume designers everybody out there for awards consideration. And I am so fortunate that for Christopher Robin, a film that our regular listeners know and my regular readers know, I am just it, pure enchantment. Um, it was a magical delight. I am just in love with that film and uh, what Disney did, Disney did with that with director Mark Forster and, of course, Ewan McGregor and the incredible voice cast starting with Jim Cummings. But, you know, every film starts with the story, the written word on the page. So I didn't get a chance to speak with her back in the summer for the theatrical release, but I'm very excited. I got to speak with one of the screenwriters of Christopher Robin, Alison Schroeder. Alison was a co-writer on the film with Alex Ross Perry, who uh, wrote one, one of a film very dear to my heart, Mark Pellington's film, Nostalgia. Uh, another co-writer, Tom McCarthy. You know him for Spotlight, The Visitor, Million Dollar Arm. And McCarthy is also involved with The Nutcracker in the Four Realms, which is out right now. So I was very excited to speak with Allison and get her take on developing the script of Christopher Robin, which picked up after the A.A. Milne book, The House at Pooh Corner, which ended as Christopher Robin went away to boarding school. And we picked this story up from there and then fast forward into the future with a, 
now grown up Christopher Robin is played by Ewan McGregor. So we're going to start with Allison because it all starts with a story. So take a listen. Hey, hi, Hi, Allison. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I am very happy to be talking to you, especially since I didn't get to talk to any of the writers uh, for the the at the press day for the theatrical release. So, uh, I can't believe what you achieved with this script. First of all, when did you get involved? Because I know we've got Alex with is credited, Tom is credited, mm-hmm. and you. But I, I, is it my mistake or are you the? Were, did you become the primary writer on this? I was sort of the the, the last writer on the last writer standing there. Um, but Alex sort of. Um, started the project um, a few years before I came on board and then I think um, Tom did a draft and then I sort of came on board and um, worked on it all through pre-production and production and post-production and Alex and I actually got to work together a little bit in post-production which rarely happens for two feature writers which was just a, a lot of fun for us. So. What was the impetus for the, the starting point of this story which I thought was brilliant to pick to pick this up where the book where the last book ends. Yeah, I mean, it, this this project had been in development. The idea of a grown up Christopher Robin um, for decades, I think, at this point. And so, I think a lot of people along the way were just really taken with that final chapter and where could it lead the story. Um, and Alex was the one that decided to sort of set it post World War Two. And the idea of a soldier sort of returning home and, and the drudgery of life and, um, you know, what it was like back then and sort of the pressures of work. Um, and then, yeah, and then I just came on board and kept working with that idea and trying to figure out how to um, create stakes and conflicts in the world of Pooh, which is actually a very simple, sweet um, world and what could their journey be together. Mm-hmm. And, of course, how difficult was it? Because, you know, all of the original Milne books and all of the other movies, Disney movies, everything that's predated, everything is told from the the Pooh point of view and also a child Christopher Robin. Now you've got to insert in here a mature, older Christopher Robin. We bring back the child portion by the introduction of him having a daughter. Who gets who picks up the mantle and gets very involved with Pooh and the and company, and then we still have Pooh. So we have these shifting POVs that are happening yes. here. How challenging was that, and to still maintain the essence of that simplicity and sometimes the simplest approach and outlook leads you to it the was, right one. Yeah, I mean, this is honestly one of the most difficult scripts I've written because. Um, keeping the tone of Pooh and sort of the simplicity of it, but also making a feature film that would resonate with um, adults as well. And so we really had to talk a lot about Christopher Robin, and we realized that he shouldn't be the boss, boss man at work. You know, there was definitely, he was sort of a manager, but he was a cog in the wheel himself, and he had, he used to be a hero, and he didn't know how to be a hero anymore. And so one day I realized that each of his co-workers should um, mirror a Hundred Acre Wood character. Mm-hmm. And just like he can't figure out how to save them when he gets to Hundred Acre Woods, he doesn't, he doesn't know how to be the hero there. So 
the ones we had on that, it was sort of brilliant. But, I mean, we went through so many versions of the 100 Acre Woods till we landed where we did um, to sort of find his journey. And, of course, each of the, the fluffy characters now, Pooh and Tigger and Eeyore Piglet, really, they each are getting front and center time here. Yes, yes, you know, absolutely. How, how did you go about balancing that out in terms of their interaction amongst each other and then their interaction with Christopher Robin, who, of course, maintains the greatest relationship and right. most screen time with Pooh, of course. Yeah, that was actually, I think that, happened, that break just sort of happened in a way a few weeks in when I realized that when they get to the 100 Acre Woods, he needs to lose Pooh again, that they need to hear the fake hump Chris Robin has to start to wonder, maybe there is something dangerous here. And he needed to get separated from Pooh. And by doing that, we could then have time to really meet each of the characters. And we knew immediately the next character was Eeyore. I mean, I adore writing Eeyore. I adore him. So we knew we had to do Eeyore, and then we knew Piglet, and then we'd all find them in the log column. And so we just, we realized that that was sort of a little Wizard of Oz in you know, mm-hmm. hundred acre woods, and he he gets to meet each of the characters, and so do we. And I love the fact that Mr. Winslow is equated to a woozle. Absolutely, I, I gotta say, you know, and what what I really love with a lot of this construct, in many respects, it's very akin to Mary Poppins. It is, yes, absolutely. And I it's just great. I just thought that was absolutely wonderful. That you know we have that compare you know we have that analogy and we have that similarity because we know how successful that dynamic is. And I mean, yeah. No, no, go ahead. Well, I think we just wanted to keep the story so simple and so relatable and so true to both the kid and all of us and the adult that's trying to recapture that kid. So, yeah. You know, did it? Does it ever impact you when you're writing these characters? The voice of because we have heard their voices. We heard Sterling Holloway's voices, Pooh, for decades. We've heard Jim Cummings' voice, Pooh, and then Tigger after Paul Winchell for decades. Do you he- hear those voices when you are writing the dialogue for each of these characters? Because the cadence, the rhythm, the tonal inflections. All of that is going to come into play with the actual words being spoken. Absolutely. There was definitely a a learning curve on this, and then that that moment where I could start to really write each of the characters and each of the voices, but searching through the book and listening to them, and then we had the table read um, with Brad Garrett and Jim Cummings, and the moment they started speaking, I just, my pen came out on the script, and I started scribbling notes and adjustments here and there, to really make it their voice and their cadence and, and just even the way they do words um, and the wordplay. And so that that was a lot. I mean, just the dialogue of this film was incredibly carefully crafted. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot. This is a dialogue-heavy film. Yes, it is. <laughs> now, I'm curious. Do you relish um, dialogue-heavy scripts as opposed oh. to where you have great respites? As some writers I know, they'll actually some will write out the visual direction of what's supposed to be happening then there are others that just leave a blank and say okay they run around the city and leave it to the director to map that out oh no I I like to be involved with all the little nuances and all the little details because the best storytelling is often the ones without dialogue 
I mean, I think that there are, there are certainly moments that I love actually in, in film. You write it on the page, and then you see it, and you go, you don't need those four lines. Those two characters can do it with a look. And that's the beauty of film, right? That's, that's why I'm writing screenplays and not, not novels. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, a lot of, especially my humor, a lot of my humor comes in the action. So I, I love to write all that out and, and come up with fun beats, like the gramophone on the head or the cupboard and the you know ladder joke, all that stuff. That, that, I think that's all some of the best part of writing. Well, I've got to ask you, Allison, what is the magic of Pooh for you? <laughs> that Pooh, no matter what the incarnation for a hundred years... Pooh is part of everyone's life, but what is the magic of Pooh for you and the fact you got to write a Winnie the Pooh script? I mean, it's definitely his good, pure heart, and he's such a good friend, and um, that he's so simple but so profound, and I think it's the type of character that we overlook sometimes because he does seem sort of simple and slow. But if you actually stop and you listen to him, um, it makes you really rethink things and you just want to give him a hug. And his friends are not always the easiest. Um, And he loves them anyways. And I think that's a really beautiful message. And a really beautiful film indeed. And as a reminder, in case you don't know, Christopher Robin is out on digital Blu-ray DVD tomorrow. Uh, election Day, November the 6th. So after you go vote, go pick up a copy of Christopher Robin. Watch it and will make your heart smile amidst all of the political turmoil that's going on tomorrow. But, you know, once we have a script, it then it's developing the characters. And in this case, it's the character's voice. And as I briefly mentioned with Allison, it, these are voices that are very iconic of of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger. Um, and Eeyore, who has had various uh, individuals voicing him. So what happens then to bring the character to life through voice? And for that, there was nobody better to talk to again. I love, I love this man. I love speaking with him as often as I can. Take a listen to what Jim Cummings had to say about voicing Pooh, voicing Tigger, and what about an Academy Award nomination? Hey, Jim. Good morning, Debbie. How are you doing? All right. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a couple months because uh, we chatted uh, during the theat- during the uh, press day in L.A. for the theatrical release. Yes, absolutely. And what I want to know right now is if the Academy finally has the wisdom to nominate you for an Oscar performance... Oh. Would you rather be nominated for voicing Pooh or Tigger? Yes. Well, uh, that's interesting. Uh, well, I, uh, uh, I don't, I know, I don't know. I was, I was not, I, I never win anything anyway. I'm not, you know, but, uh, but I, I was actually uh, a few years ago. I was nominated. There were five nominees, and I was two of them. And I didn't win that one either, so I don't have much hope. But uh, I guess Pooh, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he had uh, the lion's share of, of work in the movie, so I think that would be right. But on the other hand, you know, 
they could nominate me uh, for being a mime, and I would, I would be, I would take it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you know that the public, you know, you have won the hearts of the public. With, oh well, that, I'll take that. Thank you so much. What is it about the the magic of of Pooh and the Pooh stories? that really draw you in? Because I know you put your heart and soul into the voicing and the characters that you do voice. So if there wasn't something about the character, you wouldn't show up just to do a voice if you didn't believe in the character and, and the essence of it. So I'm curious, what is it about yeah. who? Well, well, thank you. That's a, that's a beautiful question. I, I, um, I think he's... Uh, I, I think there's a... There's a quiet wisdom and a serenity about him, and um, he he doesn't take himself very seriously. But yet he's got a he's got a serious contribution. He's a there's a Zen like approach, you know. I say he sees the world through honey colored glasses, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and he and and he, he just has everything in in a, in a beautiful perspective. I think, mm-hmm. and it shows, and, and he's a. Uh, you know, I've always said that, you know, Tigger is the hurricane and who's the eye of the hurricane. He has no idea that uh, everything's going to, you know, whirling around him at 900 miles an hour because to him, he's got that inner serenity and he's got his philosophy and, uh, and it keeps him warm. It keeps him moving forward. And, uh, I mean, look how long he waited for Christopher to come back. That's right. <laughs> Who will always be there for Christopher and for the rest of us? Yes, he will. You know, I'm, I'm curious, having voiced Pooh for so many decades now and Tigger as well, what do you see in the evolution of the characters and how they've been portrayed and the stories that revolve around them? What makes this portrayal, these the performances in the story in Christopher Robin... What sets it apart from the other iterations and incarnations of Pooh stories that we've had? Sure. Well, you know, it's a, uh, as I've said before, it's a, it's a more understated situation. And there's a quiet elegance to it. It's a, this movie was a period piece, really, from the 20s to the 40s. And, um, you know, I've said before, you know, there were no... Uh, there was no runaway trains in here. Uh, it was on a train, but it wasn't. It wasn't very dangerous. And you know, there, there's no waterfalls that are going over, or you know, uh, hot air balloons that they have to safely land from. And uh, so, therefore, the, you know, it's less boisterous overall. And it's more about the since it was a story about Christopher Robin. It was about who uh, kind of guiding Christopher back to his, his childhood and to that which is important and what used to be important to him. And it's like he said, well, you know, will he ever forget about me? Not if I live to be a hundred. And he kind of did. Mm-hmm. In doing so, he, he lost his way a, a bit. And, uh, you know, Pooh came back into his life and, and it reconnected him with his life. And, uh, you know, there's a, a certain sweetness to that and it speaks to everyone. And it was very different in that sense because... Usually, it was Christopher saving the Hundred Acre Wood Gang, mm-hmm. and this time, this time it was reversed, and it, it came out so beautifully. And I'm, I'm just so glad that everyone's responded so positively. Do you appreciate the, uh, the more subtle nature 
of Pooh in this film when you're when you're getting into character and voicing him? Do you appreciate the opportunity to have more of this subtlety in vocal storytelling as opposed to some other Pooh experiences? Uh, yes, actually, yeah. You know, um, you know, I, you know, and my myself and my friends, uh, you know, the, from Wayne Allwine, the great Wayne Allwine, he got rest of soul, Mickey and Brucey Taylor, Bill Farmer. You know, they we will say that well. You know, there's a certain parade mode where you're sitting there, hey, everybody, hey, you know, Bill doing his goofing, it's very, very boisterous. Whereas, like, in, uh, to use another character, for example, is in, in the Goofy movie, he, he was still Goofy, don't, don't get me wrong, but yet he had an opportunity because it was it was the softer side and he was trying to reconnect with his son. It wasn't Goofy falling down the steps and landing with his, you know, foot in a water bucket and a mop on his head all the time. It was him being a dad and being sensitive, and uh, and that you know it took us from you know uh, high in the face mode to you know a more serious situation. So there was there, there you know there was a built-in subtlety to it, and you had to serve the story. Mark Forster's vision was just so elegant, beautiful, and charming, and I think it you know everybody reconnected to their childhood through it. I think. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. You know, but and then when we take a look at Tigger, who, even when you you're bringing him down a notch in the exuberance department, there is still this high octane energy about Tigger. Was it a challenge to rein him in emotionally this go round? Uh, well, I guess yes and no because he's still going to be Tigger. Yeah, you know, and it was a uh, it was especially challenging because uh, uh, this is weird. I guess I'm, I'm allowed to talk about this because everybody seems like the whole world knows it already. They've already asked me. I wasn't cast as Tigger in this movie originally, which was knocked me for a loop. I didn't know what to do with myself. But uh, you know, you just soldier on. And I guess after they started showing, and I think you know, Chris O'Dowd was there. <laughs> Excuse me, and he, he's a great, magnificent actor. I think. I think all it was was that uh, people just went, "Oh, wait, that's this isn't a ticker." I think it was just too late in the game to completely reinvent uh, one of the major characters, and so I had to. Uh, he, he he had already recorded, and to a certain extent, they had um, they had. Uh, uh, already choreographed it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Sorry, so there was a there, that that in, in itself was a challenge because the rhythms uh, were very different than you know my own would have been. Mm-hmm. You know, but we but we made it work, and, and it, it all came out of the wash. Well, you know, I just so, find I find it highly offensive that you were brought in as a cleanup header instead of the first string. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I wasn't crazy about it either, but, but it, it, it seems to have worked out. So I've got I I've got to ask you, Jim, and I didn't get to ask this of you, you know, back in the summer. What did you from this iteration, these performances of two Pooh and Tigger, this go round? What did you learn about yourself with the craft with the craft you had to bring this time that you will now infuse into other performances that you give? 
Well, uh, I think there, there was a, it was a, perhaps a deeper appreciation for subtlety and, uh, you know, the axiom less is more that uh, it came into play, I think, to a great extent. And it was very rewarding. Well, Jim, as always, a delight talking with you. I can't wait to see you again. And I still think the Academy needs to acknowledge your work with an Oscar nomination. Well, well, you know what? Uh, From your lips to God's ears. And yes, that was the incomparable Jim Cummings talking about Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh. But, you know, you've got your story, you've got your characters, their personalities are, uh, the voicing helps define those. But there's another element that comes into play, especially when you're mixing, when you have a live action film like this, and that's your costuming. So lucky me, I finally got to talk to Jenny Beaven, Academy Award winning costume designer, who also, by the way, and you're going to hear what she has to say about this film as well, a little bit what she has to say about this film as well, the glorious costumes that you're now seeing in The Nutcracker and The Four Realms are also compliments of Jenny Beaven. But as you can, as you, you can plainly see, there's a big difference between costumes for Christopher Robin and costumes for The Nutcracker. But the bulk of our interview revolved around Christopher Robin. So let's take a look. And let's take a listen as Jenny talks about the the unforgettable patented red sweater of Pooh and Christopher Robin. Hi, Jenny. Hello. Hi, Jenny. Hi. How are you? Very well, thank you. I am so thrilled to be talking to you. You have been, I have been such a longtime admirer of your work. How amazing. Thank you. uh, Just from everything from the Black Dahlia, Ever After, um, obviously to Mad Max. um, Yeah. But then what you brought to life here, and I I did interviews for the theatrical release, and I spoke with our wonderful director, and he raved about you, and it's something that... I picked up on as well what you went through to get the specific red for not only Pooh's signature red sweater, but the matching one that Ewan is wearing in that final shot of the film where the two of them are there in their little red sweaters. And I just burst, I burst into tears with that, with that image. Well, I think he was supposed to, so well done, yes. You know, how do you, because here you're also, and you also, from what I understand, you were also involved in the finding the fabrications and the textures for, you know, each of the characters, for Tigger and for Pooh, so you had two-footed people to worry about, and then adorable fluffies. Well, in in truth, I only did bits of the creatures. They were actually made by animated extras, who Mm -hmm. are the most incredibly clever prop um, company at Shepton Studios. And they found, um, I think we all helped each other, but they really found the wonderful sort of fur fabric that Pooh is made out of. We certainly did the red 
of the sweater and knitted the sweater. I did not personally. My young trainee, um, who is a fabulous knitter, actually knitted the sweater. And we certainly helped with um, Piglet's sweater and Rue's scarf. Mm -hmm. And we're just generally involved. But Animated Extras should take the credit for the fantastic animals. I'm curious, because you're, you're doing a period piece... But in addition to that, I'm sure that one element you have to worry about, too, is when you're dressing your principals who are interacting with the creatures, with the fluffies, you've yes. also got to worry about the color combinations there um, in determining fabric and color so you don't have things clashing and breaking your, your emotional balance with Pooh, with Tigger, with, uh, with Rue and Piglet. Well, in fact, um, I think the fact Mark Forster wanted this very monochromatic post-war Britain look was incredibly helpful because then the animals could pop out mm -hmm. against our very natural, what people wore in those days. And I hate to tell you, but I remember it, or I remember some of it, because um, I grew up in the 50s, and I remember the end of rationing, and I remember, you know, how very few clothes people had, too. Mm -hmm. My father had... Because he was a musician, he had his tailcoat and his dinner jacket for concerts. He had a dark suit for recitals, and then he sort of had a couple of sports coats and flannels, and that was it. And you know, I remember it, we only had a couple of pairs of shoes: your indoor shoes and your outdoor shoes. It was a very different time, so I could tune into that. But that. Um, sobriety of colour and obviously it was all pretty much all natural fabrics then I think really helped tell the story A, because of Christopher Robin being in a bad headspace but also to show how the animals and the joy of them could, could actually you know, be really shown off well against the simple, simple greys mm -hmm. Now did you uh, style the clothes uh, from scratch, make them from scratch or did, were you able to outsource to vintage pieces for a lot of this? Oh, a lot of it was stock from good costume houses. We, um, I normally work out of Cosprop, and the owner of that, John Bright, and I shared design credits for years, and he has a fantastic stock. So we did, we did everybody... We dressed them from stock and then made as we needed. So Haley, we made quite a lot. We got ideas from, you know, mainly original 50s clothing, mm -hmm. 40s, 50s clothing. Um, and then we made for her because it was never quite right for the character. But she didn't need a lot of clothes because, you know, as I said before, they people didn't have a lot. Um, and then Ewan, of course, we had to make an awful lot of repeat suits and mats because of what he goes through and going into the water and mm -hmm. stunt people and taking, you know, having room for a wetsuit underneath and all that sort of thing. So his clothes were almost exclusively made from scratch. He might just have had a pair of trousers and a jacket, but... Basically, his, his suits and his Macs were all made new. His hats were made. Oh, no, we bought the hats from Locks mm -hmm. um, because not too much happened to them. But, again, we needed repeats. Mm -hmm. So it was more... And, of course, the little girl we made and the young Christopher because children always have to have photo doubles on set, uh, often two if, they, if they're very young. So they only do certain hours, which I think is quite correct. So we made all their clothes. But mainly all the people in the office, 
um, you know, it, well, all those characters were all Cosprop stock, mm-hmm. just, just fitting it appropriately. And then all the people on the beach at the end, if you stayed, oh. that hilarious little... Hey, I film. stayed. <laughs> I stayed. And that is one of the most delightful sequences. It's hilarious. Isn't it wonderful? Oh, my God. And the bathing attire it is just yeah. a scream. Well, that was all real. I mean, we we couldn't get it all from Cosprop. Um, my fantastic team went and sourced stuff from other costume houses. But, you know, that period isn't particularly difficult. There is a lot of, of clothing around. You just have to go out and find it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, occasionally we go to a vintage sale, but I much prefer to go to a costume house and rent it. You get a much better range of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you get all the accessories, the bags, the hats. Um, obviously, you buy st- thicker stockings. That's becoming a problem. I mean, who on earth makes stockings that look like they were in the 50s? But, you know, with careful attention, you can find them still. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and so it's a real sort of go out there and, and bring it all back and then and then have mass dressing up sessions, which my team do. And I normally pop in and see how they're doing or I'll do the first couple of fittings to show the way I think it should go. They look at what I'm doing for principles. I look at what they're doing. So we always know um, that we'll be in sync with each other. Mm-hmm. And something I noticed that you also did, sticking with the greys, because I know Mark had talked at length about the whole idea of coal and the pallor that the coal dust of the region gets into the air and on everything. You know, I think you actually picked some slightly different tones for the principals as opposed to the background actors because the people on the streets, because we have so many scenes out on the streets, they really do fade into the background as opposed to Haley and Ewan and, of course, you know, our, our little fluffies. Um, yeah, yes. I think that's also to do with the camera work mm-hmm. and, and the way it will select because, um, I mean, you don't want... The, you want the background normally to just look absolutely right so you don't question them. And I think my team who dressed them were just extraordinary. I mean, I was obviously around, but I cannot possibly fit every single person in a film. So <laughs> I rely on extremely clever and talented people to do that. How many, I had them. how many costumes did you have to do, put together for this film? It was a lot because there was a slight problem of scheduling that you couldn't reuse stuff all the time. Oh. So you had to fit crowds individually, particularly the big railway station scene mm-hmm. was shot down at Dover where there's an old railway terminal that used to be used for the channel crossing and is now um, empty and actually makes I mean they had to put a lot of work into it to make it work but it's an amazing space. We must have had, I think we had nearly 500 people there but the clothes we'd then used in town up in London um, you know we couldn't we couldn't use them because um, they, it was too short a turnaround. This is my memory of it, and it is a couple of years ago. And so I think we probably had about 1,500 outfits. Wow. Um, but maybe slightly less. But you always need more to fit, because mm-hmm. obviously you don't know who you're going to get sent. You want to be able to cover a really big range of sizes, ages, um, you know, rich, poor, workers, mm-hmm. you name it, whatever. Um so I would imagine we had about 1,500 wow. outfits. 
and obviously the principles were, were much more straightforward in a way because we only needed, other than Ewan and the, and the children, we only needed one-offs of those right. things. It wasn't a stunt film, you know, it was much more real, real film about mm-hmm. real people. One last question, I'd be remiss not to ask you about the upcoming film, Nutcracker and the Four Realms. Totally different okay. costuming from what I've yeah. seen in clips and trailers is beyond yeah. gorgeous and magnificent. So I'm wondering, can you give me a little inside info on creating the fantasy of that world versus the reality of Pooh and Christopher Robin. Well, Nutcracker again has the reality because you're set in a world of the 18 sort of 70s, late Victorian, and then of course the little girl goes into this parallel universe, which is the joy of all time for a costume designer. Can you imagine? But you see. The joy of my job generally is that every project is so different and I have to really sort of, you know, change gear and think up totally new things, which is what I like doing best. So Nutcracker is the polar opposite of Christopher Robin and what fun. I mean, and obviously it was done... It was done a lot from memories and dreams of that when you go into a dream or another world, there's often something that you remember... From, the, from what you've seen in the day that you will carry through to your dream and I thought that was particularly with the realms that it was to do with the ornaments in the mother's cabinet that would inform what these people looked like and luckily everybody agreed with me so that was okay and then we just made them Lots and lots and lots of them. And again, I had an incredible team who, you know, once they got the idea, um, went off with it with boundless enthusiasm and occasionally had to be sort of brought back to reality. But um, And we all lived with glitter. In fact, I think I've still got glitter in my wardrobe, you know. <laughs> the whole thing was covered in glitter and we, we glittered happily um, for months. And for anyone who has not yet seen The Nutcracker in the Four Realms, there's a lot of glitter. There is also some incredible fantastical costuming courtesy of Jenny Beaven. Uh, I have seen the movie since she and I did this interview a couple weeks ago. Uh, I saw the film before at uh, a Disney screen press screening before release. And uh, I have to say, Eugenio Derbez's costume is just, it is out of this world. He looks like a flower. It is a white on white brocade punctuated with flowers as trim uh, and then hair and makeup also with floral design. Absolutely incredible and fantastical. Similarly with Helen Mirren's costume. If you see the Nutcracker in the Four Realms for no other reason, see it for Jenny Beaven's costuming. Uh, Trust me. But her little matching red sweaters for Winnie the Pooh and Ewan McGregor as Christopher Robin uh, really do touch the heart in Christopher Robin. So that is our journey into the Hundred Acre Woods today. We're going to switch gears here. And now we're going to go. I was uh, so excited about this film. Welcome to the Men's Club. It is written, directed, produced, and also one of the stars of the ensemble cast, Joseph Culp. Joseph Culp is the son of the legendary Robert Culp. 
Um, for me, it was a real treat to get to talk to Joseph as I actually had the opportunity 35 years ago, 36 years ago, of working on multiple episodes, doing some PA work on The Greatest American Hero, which starred his father, Robert Culp. Um, and just watching a man like Robert, you learned a lot about demeanor, comportment on a set, the way actors treated their fans and should treat their fans, and the way fans had had more respect than in today's age, um, where social media is just so prevalent and everybody feels like the celebrities and the talent uh, are sitting at their kitchen table uh, with a, a familiarity um, that can lead to breeding contempt, let's face it. So it was great to talk to Joseph, but letting him go into detail about his casting, about writing this script. And it's all about, it's set in a men's support group, um, of which there are many. Joseph uh, was giving me a backstory on it. And here is a support group that eventually descends into total chaos. Because as with women, claws come out. Uh, but here they come out in a different way, including the shedding of all clothes. And I think the record for, for film for is every one of the leads, lead men, the ensemble, strips down, they are in the buff. Yes, they are. And that seems to be a theme in films right now. Uh, be on the lookout in Outlaw King for Chris Pine in a rather stunning, stunning few frames. Um, but I digress. Um, the Welcome to the Men's Club stars an incredible ensemble cast. Timothy Bottoms, Stephen Tobolowsky, Terrence Rotolo, Joseph Colt, Mackenzie Aston, Ali Sam, Phil Abrams, and Dave Clennon. So this is just part of our interview that you're going to hear now, talking about developing the script, the themes that are discussed, very timely and topical in today's me Too world and then the casting process uh, and he's got some great anecdotes that I hopefully I hope are within the the time frame so you'll get to hear them uh, so without any further ado take a listen to Joseph Culp talking about welcome to the men's group the issues that you have written and you bring to life in welcome to the men's group Joseph they are so timely so topical and really fall into like at the one hour mark when the guys go at each other's throats and we've got Tobolowski running around stark naked with manure all over him um, yeah. that really yeah. feeds into the whole socio-political climate right now you know when we made when we wrote the film my, my writing partner Scott and I um, set out to you know, to, to, our objective really was that we had been inspired by this type of work, uh, men's groups and the men's movement, really, of the past almost 30 years yeah. now it's been around, uh, which was clearly a response to, and I think a very positive response to feminism, which was to say, okay, yes, women are more empowered as they should be. What do we, how are we going to meet them? What do we have to look at? Uh -huh. and, and that we also have to look at our own wounds, our own healing from it in, in a, you know, in a more 
you know, empathic sort of way. And so you started having men go into these groups. And, you know, when we wrote it, it was really out of the impulse to say, my God, this is such inspiring work. We've got to figure out a way to bring an audience into that experience without, and it can be, it can be dramatic, it can be funny, but, it, but without it actually being a typical satire, which is what Hollywood would have us do. Oh, obviously. You know, they would just say, well, I mean, people did. They read the script and went, well, what are you talking about? This is like my dinner with Andre, you know, with eight guys. It's like, you can't do that. You know, you've got to, they got to go on a camping trip and they got to meet up with hookers and the whole thing. And it's like the hangover thing, you know? Yeah. And we said, and we said no, 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 no. We're going to do it like this. Even if it's just for us, <laughs> we got to do it. So we honor the group, the work that is going on. And you know, challenge an audience for once in a while to, to go into something that is unusual, you know, that is provocative. Um, and when, in terms of the issues, we just had a, you know, gut sense like, well, if we, if we share what, what this is, it's gonna hit a nerve somewhere. It's gonna say the right thing. And then, you know, Me Too and Time's Up and everything happened in the last year, which absolutely made the relevance of the film, to me, even more profound. You know, mm -hmm. they said, like, that this is the time when we need, that men need to be looked at and, and with a compassionate eye and also the challenges that they're facing. Because that's, to me, the great, um, you know, danger in some ways uh, with initially with Me Too and Time's Up, a lot of men felt like, oh shit, you know, we're now we're on ice, you know, and uh, and and I don't want men to become vilified. I want them to be more understood. Uh, that's the next part of the conversation, mm -hmm. you know. Once we own that, women have been uh, abused, misused, all of that and that's not going to stand anymore, then we need to enter into a new space. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how will we do that? So I hope men's group, welcome to the men's group, will kind of offer a, a window into that space. Well, I, I love the way you have structured this and the amount of screen time that you devote to each individual man, that each one, there is value in what he has to say, and, you know, it's interesting how it's approached and trying to maintain civility. No, you're out of turn. It's not your turn. No interruptions, um, which I think is uh, that's something that really stands out to me is the well, that's, a, that's a whole look at, at, at how how can men, you know, learn to, <laughs> to conduct themselves, you know, which Again, these guys are are challenging so many mm -hmm. institutionalized taboos, you know, or if you will, uh, sharing feelings, um, pushing each other to be more honest and authentic, um, uh, trying to maintain some sort of civil forum without it descending into uh, violence, which often men do, and and indeed it, it ends up happening. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a bit of a uh, uh, a foregone conclusion that that they try very hard, but you know the passions 
uh, are going to trigger each other because they're doing something that's extraordinarily difficult mm-hmm. um, that most men won't even try. Um, and so, yes, trying to have, you know, my character is this sort of semi-group leader who's trying to, you know, encourage them uh, to, 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 you know, move ahead in a kind of, on, to honor each, what each man has to say, that there's a talking stick. All of those, of course, are, are real things that mm-hmm. come from many of these groups. Um, but we also knew dramatically that this is a, still a story. It's still a movie. So as deep as we want to go into each guy, the whole thing has to somehow start to um, catalyze mm-hmm. into drama, into, you know, the essential conflict, which many people said, well, which, con- you know, whose conflict is it? Which guy is it about? And I said, well, it's kind of about all of them. Truly really. is. You know, it's kind of like the star is the group, not not any one guy, even though each guy participates in some way that creates that kind of drama. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, I love the character, Mackenzie's character of Tom, because Tom is a newcomer to this established group, and he essentially, for the first part of the film, he is the eyes of the audience. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you know, we get to experience this as he is experiencing it and seeing it. And kudos to you and to your DP, to Monty Rowan. I mean, you got some great camera shots in there with expressions on Mackenzie's face. Oh yeah, that it's priceless. That you so know, good. as you're, as so I'm good. watching the movie, I'm sure with some of the stuff that's happening. I probably had similar expressions on my face, but to see... That, that was the whole point. Yeah. Mackenzie, Tom, is the audience surrogate. It was like, I said, you know, I, it's one thing to go into a group that these guys who sort of, you know, know each other. The whole thing is we have an audience out there that has never seen this kind of mm-hmm. activity, at least not that up close and personal. So we need a guy who is our audience so that we can go to him in the edit, you know, constantly check back with him, like, and how was that for all of us? Mm-hmm. And most of the time, he's, he's our audience. He's like, what are these guys? Yeah. Okay, that's kind of nice, but that was not nice. I don't like that. Uh, this goes too far. And he, he absolutely channeled what we were hoping, which was this, you know, this, 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 this uh, guest, you know, yeah. the audience as guest into this group. And then very, it's very possible he may check out. He may say, you know, this is enough, just like an audience might. Yeah. And then it, it takes it up a notch where he actually feels, I can't leave these guys. I have to see this through. Yeah. Like, I've gotten too close now. I can't just leave. I, I was sensing, if the way he was playing it, I was sensing, okay, Tom has, you know, he, he wants to have one foot out the door. <laughs> But he's got this, not only has he connected with these guys, but there's also this sense of morbid curiosity as to what's going to happen here. Yeah, a bit. And and I also feel like, yeah, the what's the what's going to happen here, hopefully that too is, and I think it has been shared by most, most of the audience that, we've, that have seen it. They're like, you know, I, I've seen so much now, I can't just turn this off. I've got to, I've got to see what yeah. happens to these guys. And that's Mackenzie, too. On the, on the side of his 
his sort of identity as a man, there is something more to it as well, I think, which is that he, he it, it is touching something in him. Maybe it's something about, you know, what, where am I at with my maleness? You know, where, what good is it really if I don't support somebody who's in trouble? Mm-hmm. Um, which, which he clearly, once Carl and Tobolowski is really over the deep end, he feels like, well, all right. And he's the first guy to step forward. Yeah. Which is really, I always, I thought about that really hard. Because I know Scott and I talked about it, and I said, who's going to be the first one? I said, it's got to be Tom. Yeah. It's got to be not what we expect. It's got to be a guy who says, you know what? Um, I, I have no history with this guy. If this is what he needs to, to, to feel well, then so be it, you know? Uh, we have to honor our promise, you know, and he's, and he's the first guy to do it, which I think, I don't know, I, I believe it. I mean, I thought he would be the first one because everybody else there, they know the baggage. Yeah. And in, in some ways, they may have contributed to it. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. therefore, it's the guy, and somebody, if I had been in a mix like that, and it's like, eh, yeah, do I step up? It's like, is this going to come back to haunt me? But here you've got the guy with the fresh eyes. So he doesn't yeah. know all of that. So I, I, I figured and, he and would be the like, one. Like, again, like you said, like, like, like the audience in a certain way. It's like, well, what's the big deal? Yeah. Like, okay, you made a promise, carry it through. Yeah. That's what you guys are supposed to be about, you know? So we're, we're, we, we want it to happen. We just don't know exactly how. <laughs> Well, yeah. I have to, your casting here, this is what really makes this work, Good. Joseph. The casting, this is Im- an impeccably blended cast. The chemistry, the dynamic. How difficult was it for you to come up with this specific cast? Because if you take out one of these actors yeah. and replace yeah. them, yeah. I don't see it working. I couldn't agree with you more, Debbie. It's like I feel blessed in about 500 ways with this cast. It's just unbelievable what happened. Um, how does anything, you know, really get cast well? And it's it's somehow something a little bit, you know, karmic, if you will, because mm-hmm. uh, there's no other way to explain it. You know, there's lots of actors out there, yep. all wonderful, um, and in a way, we we earned it by going through the ridiculous and terrible pains of trying to cast an independent film, which means always <laughs> in the beginning, everybody's like, and I say everybody, meaning uh, people I won't name, but where you know people involved are saying, "Can't we get?" Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Can't we make an offer to, and I would just look at them all, having at least the ones seemingly with the most experience, and I said, no, we can't, you know, it's it's a waste of time, but it didn't stop us. We took, I think we took an extra six, eight months maybe of, of going through that whole ridiculous inane process where, and there are actors out there, wonderful, well-known actors, who uh, 
would have done this film, but their agent wouldn't even show them the script. Mm-hmm. Just wouldn't. The money, you know, the money we could offer was paltry, of course. It was just basic. Um, and so they stop us. And I know that there's actors who cursed them, saying, I wish I had been in that movie. I wish I had been able to read it. And so we just, you know, we went through that process with uh, the, the names. And I said, look, we can get people who have names. It's just not going to be the kind of financial thing. And that's a whole distorted perception now, too. I'm yep. going on a little bit too much about this, but I'm just, it's a preface to just say, we went through that, that process, and finally I said, please, let's just start, put it out. Let's see who comes in. Let's see who comes in. The first person to walk in the door was Stephen Toflowski. <laughs> you know, God, thank God his agent or whatever uh, sent him the script. Said, well, maybe Toflowski will read it. He read it, and it was all in the script. You know, I'm quite proud to say that we worked, we worked very hard to make this the best, most beautiful script we could. And he walked in and goes, it's outstanding. Uh, uh, what What do you want me to do? Wow. You know, it was really like that. He says, I just absolutely love the writing, what you're, what you're trying to get out here, and just tell me. Uh, and I said, are you kidding? You know? Um, and that began, you know, he became really, in a way, the fulcrum by which we began to build from there. Still took, you know, a few more months, but we saw each actor in the film we saw. There are some uh, that will not be named that um, were interested, but, you know, they had uh, some hang-ups, mm -hmm. let's put it that way. And every actor that came in, uh, Terrence Rotolo, this guy who plays Eddie, just... He's, he's really wonderful. He's like, he, he's been a stuntman for most of his career. Mm -hmm. He's a trained actor, trained with excellent teachers. I know his teachers. And, but he, you know, didn't get a lot of work, and he was tough, and he did stunt work, and he's an excellent stuntman. And he came in talking about Joseph Campbell and his <laughs> mythology, and I said, who is this guy? And I feel like he was you know, born to play that role. Um, David Clennon, what can you say, you know? This guy is really an, an iconic veteran to me, and he uh, came in just just as uh, humble as could be. Um, I said, let's try it this way, let's try it that way. He uh, went for it, came back, did it again. Um, it was a warming process, you know, where mm -hmm. each personality just kind of came into view. Timothy Bottoms, oh. get out, you know. I mean, is it not maybe one of the greatest performances of his career? I, I mean, think it, like, I think it is the best of his of his career. In all honesty, I really I mean, do. It's tremendous what he does. It's it's shattering what he does. It's so brave and so funny and and also nuanced, you know, it's just, uh, and he, he came in, came, drove down from his ranch, which is north of San Luis Obispo, basically, where he mostly lived, mm -hmm. and uh, came in with his little 
watch cap on, like he just come off of the farm. And he goes, uh, you know, uh, what do you think? And I said, what do I think? I said, what do you, what do you, what do you think? And he said, you know, this Larry actually, because I, I, for a moment or two, I thought of him for another role, and he he thought about it really hard, and he goes, it's 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 actually kind of far from me, but I really get it, you know. Wow. And that is just part of my conversation with Joseph Culp talking about Welcome to the Men's Group, which is out in limited release right now. Uh, You will find more of my interview with Joseph and many, many, many other people on BehindTheLensOnline.net, among other places. Uh, But that is all the time we have for today. So remember, Christopher Robin, available digital DVD Blu-ray tomorrow. Nutcracker in the Four Realms is out now. Uh, Welcome to the Men's Group is out. Men's Group is out. Another little indie film I can't recommend highly enough. Perry King, star of Riptide, many, many, Melrose Place, many decades, 50 50 years in television and film. Finally, at age 70, directs his first film. It is called The Divide. Uh, Not to be confused with the one from a few years ago that the only redeeming quality in it was new uses for duct tape. This is a black and white gem. It's a character study and it is amazing. And that opens this week in very limited release uh, throughout the country. And uh, maybe next week you'll hear my interview that I just did with Perry uh, on Friday. But also next week, it looks like we're going to have Alex Winter live talking his latest documentary, Trust Machine, the story of blockchain. And hopefully... Uh, the director of a new documentary called The Joneses. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 